0: Podcast listeners, and welcome back to the Rational Face Podcast, the best podcast on the blabbernackle. Glad to have you back with us. We have another episode, if you've noticed the music, another part in the series Ask the Mormon Sex Therapist with Jennifer Finlayson Fife and Laurel Armstrong. Uh, Hopefully, this will be a little bit of a distraction from Policygate 2015 and other upsetting news that's been going on the last week or so. This podcast, we answer, we discuss rather two questions. One regarding oral sex, is oral moral, and another regarding lust and objectification and those kinds of things. So that's what you have to look forward to. Laurel and I do talk a little bit about the fundraiser that we're starting again with the Liahona Children's Foundation that. Uh, We'll be explaining more detail in the podcast episode following this one. Actually released the same day, just later in the day. So make sure to listen to that one as well. Go to the website, look that up. That's what's coming at you. And let's jump right to it. Well, I'm back here with Jennifer and Laurel to answer some questions that listeners and readers of the blog have. Uh, Before we get started, I just want to announce that when this podcast episode releases, so when you're listening to it, you can go to Jennifer's site, and she has all or some of what courses? you have some courses on sale? Um,
1: All the courses. There's four of them, Uh, one on relationships for couples, one on sexuality for couples, then one on how to talk to your kids about sex, and then The Art of Desire, which is a course for LDS women about sexual desire. Um, and so, yeah, all four courses are on sale for Christmas.
0: Great. Yeah. And that's a good gift that blesses both people in the marriage. And in addition to that, we are starting our fundraising campaign for the Liahona Children's Foundation like we did last year. Uh, we've upped our goal. Uh, we've got a Indiegogo page where we're collecting all that and funneling it into the Liahona Children's Foundation and we've got a lot of perks so go on there and see what prizes you can win from donating and one of them is Jennifer's Art of Desire course which is focused on female sexuality so we've got all that going on but we've got some pretty big questions to um, address and so let's get started with that Laurel why don't you take us into the first question
2: Alright, it's a bit long but we'll get through this, Uh, here we go. I recently returned home from my mission and married my husband this summer. We dated for over a year before we both left to go on our missions. We are now at school. I was really nervous about our sex life prior to marriage because my husband had previous experience with one person for an extended period of time before we met. Overall, I feel like we've done a very good job adjusting and working through initial issues that we had. But there is one thing that is still really heavy on my mind and heart. My mom shared with me a few years back that oral sex was not okay, and that the first presidency even released a letter years ago. My husband and I discussed this prior to marriage, and I was so up in the air about whether or not to try it. I eventually decided that I would just try it and see how I felt. We have gone back and forth, doing it and not doing it, for extended periods of time since we have been married. When he performs on me, it feels decent, but other things turn me on a lot more. When we have sex without Oral afterwards, I feel so happy, but when we have sex with Oral, I feel depressed and so stressed out about it afterwards. It's much worse when he does it to me. I can sort of push it to the back of my mind when I do it to him. I have the sweetest husband, and when I first talked to him about this, he was really understanding, but I can tell he really enjoys it, and I don't want my concerns to create a less sexually fulfilling relationship for him. At the same time, if God really does view oral sex as unnatural and I am breaking my temple covenants when I engage in it, then I don't want to do it. If it was just my mom's personal opinion, I would most likely dismiss it, even though I look up to her a ton. But thinking that the prophet said it has made it much more important to me. I just want to have the best marriage I can have. I want to feel close to my husband and I don't want to feel insecure. If you have any tips or know of anything I could read, listen to or watch, I would really appreciate it.
1: Okay, great. This is a great question, and it's definitely one that I hear quite a bit or that I have couples that come in for um, sessions with me, and this is one of the anxieties or concerns that at least one of them is is holding on to. Um, so in terms of things that you can read, um, Brian is going to link some different blog posts and articles uh, to this particular Podcast, so there's going to be more context to just kind of understand. But just to summarize that a little bit, um, you know, I think prophets have pretty consistently counseled that decisions around what you actually do as a husband and wife is not the business of church leadership, and that that was definitely true up until Spencer W. Kimball, and then has been true since that time. So. For example, um, in response to one woman's questions about what's appropriate between her and her husband, Joseph Fielding Smith or Joseph F. Smith said, quote, The brethren feel that the question which you raise is such as should be answered by you and your husband and in accordance with your own convictions. The church has never believed it necessary to issue instructions pertaining to intimate relationships between husband and wife, unquote. Um, However, I think that this, you know, the general, what Joseph F. Smith was saying is the church has never believed it's necessary to to get involved in that way. And it's really according to your own convictions, your own conscience. But I think that started to change a little bit when the sexual revolution was happening in the larger culture. And I think just in the church in general and among the leadership, there was just a lot more anxiety about the cultural implications or the implications for church members that were coming out of the sexual liberalism that was happening in the larger culture and so there was a lot more focus during that time about on sex and the evils of sex that were coming across the pulpit Um, and you know I can understand why because compared to the kind of button down 50s and 60s it was like crazy out there (laughs) in their perception you know and so they talked a lot about the social ills and the sexual excess in the culture and you know, referencing swinging and casual sex and so on. And so I think in that context, there was just a lot more general anxiety about whether or not members were managing sexuality in ways that were going to create and cultivate goodness or not. So in 1982, the first presidency uh, released a letter and I'll quote that letter or at least a portion of that letter right now, which was, Quote, married persons should understand that if in their marital relations they are guilty of unnatural, impure, or unholy practices, they should not enter the temple unless and until they repent and discontinue any such practices. Husbands and wives who are aware of these requirements can determine by themselves their standing before the Lord. All of this should be conveyed without having priesthood leaders focus upon intimate matters, which are a part of husband and wife's relationships. And then it goes on to say the first presidency has interpreted oral sex as constituting an unnatural, impure, or unholy practice. So, first, when this uh, letter was issued, it pretty immediately received a lot of upset response from members who felt like that this was a, an important and good part of their sexual relationship and that they didn't feel that it was right. For the leadership to be qualifying it or for them to be determining. So there was definitely kind of a, an influx of letters in response to it. And then also, a lot of bishops were unclear about whether or not couples should be determining worthiness, you know, according to their own interpretation, as the letter said, of an unholy practice, or if the bishops were supposed to impose the first presidency's interpretation of what an unholy practice was. And so, you know, there was about 10 months of time where that letter existed, but there was a lot of confusion about it and people not really um, happy about it. And so about 10 months later, um, the First Presidency issued another letter telling local leaders to, quote, never inquire into personal intimate matters involving a man and his wife, unquote. Um, And basically to just use the existing questions in the Temple Recommend interview and to only counsel against sex acts sex acts that caused the couple some level of anxiety. So basically, if it caused the couple anxiety, then then leadership, bishops, and so on were in a position to maybe counsel against it if they were unsettled about it or uncomfortable about it. Now, of course, after anybody had read the first letter, now many people might feel anxiety about oral sex because maybe only the really righteous people (laughs) uh, would know and understand that oral sex wasn't good. Um, And so unfortunately I think the specific interpretation, even though that second letter came out and kind of said, listen, let's just let people determine for themselves again. And if they're anxious about it, then you can counsel them against an act that makes them anxious, but otherwise let's leave it up to people. So even though that was in effect what the second letter was saying, it wasn't officially revoked. It wasn't, nobody came and said, listen, we're actually okay with oral sex. And so what ends up happening is that especially scrupulous people will hang on to that kind of thing and feel like maybe really good people still don't have oral sex or maybe there's just something not really okay about it. And so maybe we really shouldn't. Um, But, you know, clearly since Spencer W. Kimball, President Hinckley and other leaders have, have definitely reaffirmed that earlier counsel that came before Spencer W. Kimball, that basically couples should really choose for themselves any practice that brings them together and uplifts them as a couple, that it's really between them to decide what that is and for them to assess that. I think that we really ought to see the counsel of that period as more of a perhaps understandable reaction to the larger cultural issues, but not as a longstanding and official position of the church, because I think if it were that, we would definitely have had it reaffirmed many times since then, because the church tends to be very, very clear when it is holding to a position, because it will reaffirm it multiple times. And there's also lots of things that have been said over the pulpit, once or twice, but not really held to, um, through, through the history of the church. And so, um, I think that, it, you know, I think it's worth considering what most the prophets have said, which is, this is really something that couples need to determine for themselves. I, I also think a way to think a little bit about this issue is, you know, there's sort of an act centered morality around sex versus a relationship-centered morality around sex. And, you know, some people really believe particular acts are just wrong uh, because of the act themselves or because God said the particular act is not okay. But, you know, we definitely have a lot more in our church doctrine, I think, a relationship-centered approach to thinking about sexuality between a husband and a wife, which is, you know, what's in your heart and what you are you know, if it's an expression of love and it's uplifting, for example, that that qualifies it as good. And I certainly think more that way in terms of, you know, what is in your heart and what you're choosing to share of yourself is what makes the act sacred, any particular sexual act sacred, not the specific position that your body's in. Because I really think, you know, the point of our existence is to love and to be loved. Um, it's to have joy. It's to care deeply for another person. And I think that our sexuality is just another way of doing that, is another part of that. So I think if, if any particular sexual act is a function of love and generosity and it's bonding, then I think it's good. Um, I think you know the, the questioner is saying that she hasn't enjoyed it as much, even though her husband's enjoyed it a lot. Uh, but I would say that the low enjoyment is very likely a function of her anxiety uh, because anxiety really shapes the body's ability to receive pleasure. The, the meaning that you're carrying in your head around something will really, really affect how your body translates the stimulation. And so, you know, if she is feeling like she's behaving or doing something that's sinful or God is not pleased with her, or that it very well could be an evil thing, she can have a much harder time feeling that it's a gift being given to her, or receiving the affection and a love that is in the expression of that sexual act. But I think, you know, one way to transform the meaning of it, or a way to really consider the meaning of it, is that if, you know, this questioner is really clear that she's married to a sweet, good man. And so if it's meaningful to her good husband, you know, then a way to transform the meaning of it is to make it uh, more basically to see the, the gift that she's giving in being able to receive from him, to basically see it as a way of allowing him to really give to her. And that I think is what, if she's able to open her heart up and receive from him in this meaningful way and in a way that he wants to give to her that that's really is what makes it loving. That's what makes it sacred and bonding. And I think that's what really God cares about. Of course, this person doesn't have to receive in that way and she doesn't have to open her heart up around this if she doesn't choose to. But I don't think there's any religious reason not to. And I might even argue there may be a religious reason to do it because there's not uh, there's not, something going on in the relationship that is concerning her. It's just more an anxiety that that it was once said by a prophet. So so I think what God cares about is not about where someone's mouth or hand is in the context of a committed, loving marriage. I think it's really about what's in our hearts. And uh, I think in a lot of ways, we need a more grown up view of God, too, that that's you know, one of the things I learned in my mission was that, one of the things I remember teaching in my mission is that, you know, part of the reason that we come to earth is to learn the difference between right and wrong and to come to know God. And, you know, as I've gotten older and I've thought about that, I feel like those are really profound sentences that I used to say in the discussions because, you know, we inherit all kinds of ideas around what God is, who God is, and what um, is is right and wrong but um, they're often sort of they might be good guidelines or guideposts but they're often immature and as we get older and we experience more and we try to really become loving grounded kind of people that I think that process of refining our own ability to really love and care for someone deeply and share ourselves deeply We start expanding our notion of what goodness is and what evil is. We come to understand it better. And also, what who God is in the process. And when you start really pushing love together with sexuality as a way of really knowing and being known, sharing, giving of yourself, receiving, you know, in this really profound and intimate way. Right. Like, you're, you're, you're allowing your body to be known and experienced all the way down, right? That, that, when, when that, that's what makes it sacred. That's what makes sex sacred is when you're using it in that form. And that's when you're really kind of forging goodness at a very profound level. And I think, um, you know, as I've said before, I really think our theology supports really meaningful, um, loving vibrant sexuality because of how much we embrace the body as a function of our spiritual development so that's my long response do any of you guys have thoughts
0: uh i empathize with the questioner because we are taught to defer to in in i think there's two things you kind of address both of them but i just want to reemphasize that we're really taught to get our guidance of what is okay and what is not okay from the leadership in the church.
2: Mm-hmm. And
0: I will tell you that you can scour lds.org for guidance on your sexual relationship, and you'll find a lot of negative stuff. Mm-hmm. You'll find a lot of stuff talking about abominations or just filth. You know, there's all these awful metaphors when they're talking mm-hmm. about sex in some way. And it might not be in a mm-hmm. marital relationship, but in it's often spoken of negatively, you know, in yes. terms of adultery, mm-hmm. premarital sex, the metaphors are awful. And so you get this overall sense that this is a really bad thing. And mm-hmm. that's a really hard yes uh, switch to flip by just getting married. And then if you keep scouring it, like you can... There's like a Jeffrey R. Holland talk that was... What was it called? Soul Souls, Symbols and Sacraments. And sacraments. Uh, uh-huh, yeah. That, that was like okay. Now yeah. that I look back at it, I'm like, he could have said a lot more than that.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: But that, yeah. that's the only one where it's like a sex positive type message. So there's that bit that if you're a faithful, yes person, you only look for this stuff there because everywhere else is the world and they're, you know... Going off the rails everywhere, so it yeah. is hard to well
1: yeah, make that choice. No, you're absolutely right. Uh, and um, two things: one is that you know, in the larger culture of a lot of sexual liberalism and you know um, the sexual revolution and so on, because we hold such conservative ideals, and I think there's a great deal of value in our conservative sexual ideals. I really do. We it 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 basically pressures up the meaning. Of sexuality when you really constrain it to very limited contexts. So if you're saying it's only in the context of a loving, committed relationship, if you choose to live by it, you are actually, um, how to say it, increasing the power of the behavior. It's a, it's a more meaningful behavior. And I think that's actually, I mean, depending on how you relate to that, it can be a negative thing or it can be a very, very positive thing. So in that, context of though a very prescribed sexual ethic there's going to be a lot of anxiety about any behavior thoughts and feelings that fall outside of that legitimate context and so here's the legitimate part is maybe trying to protect and create um, a standard that's pretty high relative to the larger culture there's going to be a more focus on the evils and the um the, the problematic elements of sexuality. Uh, The second thing I would say about it is that there are a lot of people in the church who are afraid of other people making more sexually liberal choices. And so, and they themselves are anxious about sexuality. And so they promote a lot of that sexual anxiety and that's not just contained to the church. Sexuality is a high meaning behavior and a high vulnerability behavior and so the anxiety is is human, and then when you're trying to teach and shape other people's behavior, it's easy to default to the negative and the problematic side of it. And that's not just church, you know. Even at school, you know, in my son's human sexuality class in high school, I mean, it's really about STDs and what's going to happen if you it, – It's it, there's a lot of <laughs> – cultural angst about it. They're not really talking about sort of good decision making. And, and
0: you're in Illinois. You're not in. Yes, I'm in Illinois. Really conservative right. place.
1: Right. So, I, you know, I don't think that's just LDS. Um, but then the other thing I'd say is that sex can be used for ill, you know, because it is as I probably some listeners have heard me say maybe too many times at this point. But, you know, you, you Sex is a very powerful currency. It's a very powerful language. And so you can do great harm with it and you can do great goodness with it. Now, my personal critique of the church is that we have the theology to support a much more pro-sexual message and to blend our Christian ethics with sexuality. And we need to do that. And I, uh, we need to do a better job of it because we have the theological support for it. And there's a lot of people, as you say, Brian, that are only kind of internalizing these sex negative messages and uh, having a really hard time moving from premarital restriction into a maritally joyful, um, generous, and fun sexual relationship. And, you know, I I do really think, good sexuality is as even Spencer W. Kimball said, is such a fundamental part of the glue in marriages. It's a fundamental part of how to say it, what brings joy to a marriage. It's what makes it special. It's what makes it that you and your spouse have a secret, something that just the two of you share. And sexuality can be such a wonderful part of a marriage. And we we really haven't done a good enough job, in my opinion, of really preparing Members of the church to know how to create and cultivate that. So, so yes, I sympathize with her too. Yeah,
0: and the other the other thing is that the advice that you're given growing up on determining whether something is okay or not, like mm-hmm. if you should be watching a movie, it's like, would you be comfortable doing this if your mother was in here? <laughs> if your mother was <laughs> sitting next to you, And so, like, Gosh. of course you're gonna feel uncomfortable. You're be feel uncomfortable like. Definitely. kissing beyond a peck in front of your mother for i mean there's not going to be anything that you're be. like as oh as yeah it it'd be, be fine if my mom was sitting right here while i'm doing this like it's a total different world that's horrible advice for a, you know a sexual <laughs> yes, relationship choice you should be choice. uncomfortable
1: if your mother's there in the sense that <laughs> <Exactly>. you know
0: <laughs> that's really a problem if you're comfy yeah. with your mom right there
1: your parents as i talk about in the how to talk to your kids about sex course you know parents and kids don't mix for a reason Meaning there's a natural kind of aversion between parents and kids around sexuality and it's a protective aversion. And that's partly what parents have to get over to do a good job. I mean, they don't have to get over it, but they have they can respect it, but still work with it in order to offer their kids the kind of guidance that they need. But yeah, that's not great advice in terms of do you want your mother there while you're watching a makeout scene? <laughs> so yeah.
0: Yeah, well, I, I like the part, especially pushing it from an act thing to a relational thing mm-hmm. that has so much more meaning in what you're, that, that puts meaning into it, injects the yes activity with meaning rather than just, oh, that felt good.
1: Right. Well, and we're meaning making creatures. It's what mm-hmm. we naturally do as human beings. And we're very, very good at tracking meanings. And so the meanings that you both create in your sexual relationship or attribute to even the way your spouse is touching you? Does it mean that he loves me, cares about me, is attracted to me, loves my soul and my body? Okay, that's a very attractive meaning. Does he feel like I have to service him right now? That's why he's touching me, to pressure me to come towards him? Very unarousing meaning, okay? So the meanings that we give deeply affect how our bodies respond and deeply affect the way that it shapes us shapes our relationship and even just sort of our internal organization in through sexuality so that meaning piece is really huge
0: all right let's go to our next question move along move
2: along move along
0: All right, here we go. I have very much benefited from your courses and office hour recordings. They have helped me a lot in my marriage to be a better person by recognizing the ways I act and how that affects our relationship. I do have a question for you. I am the high desire spouse in our marriage. My wife has followed the Mormon cultural message that encourages shutting off all sexuality as a way of showing her righteousness. She has never done anything intentionally to try and turn me on. In the past, when I have asked my wife to wear lingerie for me, it has caused some problems. She has done it, but does it begrudgingly. It is obvious that she hates it. She says it makes her feel like a slut, and that she feels objectified. Why can't you want me just for me, she asks. I know women hate feeling objectified. Can you describe some ways that men objectify women as I may be doing things unknowingly that perpetuates this. It is a major turnoff to have my wife wear just her garments in a t-shirt or flannel pajamas to bed night after night. Is it wrong for me to enjoy seeing my wife in sexy outfits? How do I fix this?
2: Okay,
1: great question. So uh, first of all, I absolutely do not think it's wrong to enjoy seeing your wife in sexy outfits and I think it's both normal and even important. And I think this is really an important way to keep the desire, and I'm going to use a word that we never use, but the lust alive in a marriage. (laughs) And what I'm going to say, just to understand lust, what I mean by that a little bit, is we use lust in church as a negative thing, which is, at least when I was growing up, it was always like love versus lust. Love is like when you really care for someone, you're invested in their well-being, but lust is when you basically want to use them or exploit them. Now, I'm totally with anybody who, in that interpretation, if you want to exploit somebody, take advantage of them sexually, and that's lust, then it really is a problem, okay? But I don't think that's, that's what I would call sexual exploitation, okay? But lust, in my opinion, is more around basically this human drive that we have that pressures us to bond and that pressures us to choose somebody sexually. It's about like desiring a specific person. So it's not the same thing as a sex drive in particular, but it's about basically affecting one person sexually, a specific person. And most, when he was saying women hate to be objectified, well, we want to be lusted after by our spouses. Okay. Now, a lot of people be like no thank you i in fact don't <laughs> but the thing is you people in my experience in clinical work they want to be desired by their spouse now that's different than whether or not they want to satisfy or gratify the desire but they, they don't want to necessarily satisfy it or do anything about it but they don't want that sexual energy to be directed anywhere else you know so i have plenty of people who don't want to have sex with their spouse but they don't want their spouse looking at porn or pursuing somebody else okay so they want to know that the sexual energy is directed towards them and then they'll decide whether or not any they do anything with that so that that is to say we want to be desired okay we want to be desired we want sexual energy to come towards us in our relationships even if we want to control what what and if we do about it if we do anything about it so so Going back to this, I would say, you know, keeping desire and lust alive in a marriage is really, really important to it being a satisfying marriage, both emotionally and sexually. I think, you know, as everybody knows, desire or lust is really important in the beginning of a relationship, and it's very important to the vitality in a long-term relationship. So objectifying in this sense is, is very valuable. It's really important. Now, before people turn off the program and uh, out of disgust for what I'm saying, (laughs) that objectifying is a good thing, this is not the same thing as dehumanizing somebody. So, dehumanizing somebody is a problem. Humiliating or using someone, like I was saying earlier, is a problem. Like, you're here for my gratification and use, and my needs matter more than yours. Um, There's nothing appealing about that. You know, there's nothing, if someone's really doing that, Nothing is, feels good about that. And it's what, you know, I talk about this sometimes, which is an I-it relationship. Martin Buber, who was a, a German theologian, talks about the idea of I-it relationships versus I-thou relationships. Wow. An I-it relationship is, you know, you are a self-object. You are a reflection of me. And so I want you there to validate my desires and give me what I want, but I'm literally treating you like an object that is a reflection of basically me, of my narcissism. And so that is a problem. But sexual objectification, right, in the sense that this person is talking about in the question is really a way of creating healthy distance in the context of sometimes desire suffocating familiarity in a marriage. So it's a kind of distance that reinforces the sense of your spouse's otherness a sense of their sexuality and their allure outside of your familiarity with them. And I think that sense of otherness in the context of a committed relationship is very essential to a passionate marriage. And it very much fosters this feeling of desire and lust and romantic attachment. Um, It's also what makes a relationship, a marriage relationship, Special is this sense like you're, I'm committed to you. We've made, we've, cho- we choose each other day after day after day to be with one another, but I don't possess you. I don't own you, right? And you don't own me, but we choose every day to bring our best to one another, but we are separate people. You're not a reflection of me. I'm not a reflection of you. I'm not entitled to your love and your sexuality, nor are you to mine. And yet we bless each other with it as a sort of choice and a gift. That's a kind of that's a couple that's able to keep a clear sense of the difference and the otherness alive in the context of a commitment. And so, um, so you know, when they do research that asks people about when they're most attracted to their spouse, people most typically will give times when that sense of they don't know because they're just saying, "Oh, it was when my." My wife was giving this speech in this room, and people were, you know, so um, impressed with what she was saying. And you're seeing your spouse do something separate from you, and you're seeing their strength separate from yours. That kind of thing. So when people were asked when they're most drawn to their spouse, they were citing things like that. I see them across a crowded room at a party, and you see them as not quite belonging to you, but but there, I remember sitting in relief study once, my husband came to the door to get the keys for the car. And I'm just sitting there, I look over and I like see him and I know like everybody's looking at him and I'm like, wow, he's like mine. <laughs> like, he, like his his otherness was very evident to me in that moment, just maybe just the gaze of other people. Um, and, you know, just like how attractive he was to me it was just really present just in seeing him somehow as sort of separate and maybe just knowing that the whole room was looking at him. <laughs> um, and so, you know, sometimes people talk about after a fight, that's when they're most attracted because the fight increases that sense of separation. Dressing up in lingerie, you know, basically trying to, to going out on a date, you know, um, taking yourself out of sort of the normal, familiar, kid focused elements of a relationship, going and doing things together that you've never done before, right? exercising together those kinds of things where you you have a sense of your you're moving into other territory and your sense you're experiencing yourself in a different way which is also a piece of it but experiencing the other person in a different way uh, that can drive attraction and you know garments in a t-shirt when it's the thing you wear night after night doesn't do that often and so it's a way of Basically asking to invest in the sexual relationship, invest in the specialness of it. I, I'm, you know, I can imagine that the the wife in this question, meaning the husband in reference to his wife. I, I imagine I may be wrong, but I'm sure that when they were dating, if she's like most people, was very much focused on investing in her husband's attraction to her, in sort of punctuating the sense of her desirability. And, you know, recognizing the inherent separation of that period. And so when she's saying, I'm unwilling to do it now, she's wrapping it in a frame of protecting goodness. Like, you know, I don't want to be objectified. Why don't you just love me for me? But I think, you know, but I think it really, even though she's wrapping it in goodness, it's a way of saying, I don't really want to invest in our sexual relationship. And what I imagine for this person is a sense of discomfort of that while she probably doesn't want her spouse to bring his sexual energy anywhere else, that she doesn't want to sort of take ownership of invoking desire in him of wanting herself, which is what that would suggest if she were to invest in their sexual relationship, and that she doesn't want to sort of take ownership of her own sexuality in the way that investing in the sexual relationship in this way would require. And so I imagine his request is makes her uncomfortable because it pressures her to invest in her sexual development and to pressure herself around the issue of her comfort with her own sexuality and being willing to take deeper ownership of that. You know, when... A lot of language is often around, you know, the sort of lingerie and a way of objectifying women and a way of humiliating women. But while I'm I'm sure that it can be that way, and there's people that certainly are doing that in their sexual relationships, that really it's around, you know, it's as arousing for the woman herself as it is for the husband gazing at her to kind of claim her sexuality in this way, to claim her otherness, uh, to to allure, you know, to to basically be comfortable enough with herself to be happy to do that. And that's part of that would be her part in creating a satisfying sexual relationship for her and him. Um, that would be part of her part, I should say. So, Part of her contribution. So, you know, um, again, I I think if she can make her reluctance be about her being good and him being bad, then she doesn't really have to deal with it. But I don't. I can imagine she's not entirely clear about that, and would rather just avoid it while having the security of knowing that he desires her or that he wants her and that she can then kind of control how much she wants to really offer. But I think there's a lot more for her to have if she were to um, lay claim to her sexuality more and, and she may not want to, she may not want to develop in that way, but I don't think it's a function of goodness
2: if she doesn't. I mean, my initial reaction was kind of what you covered there at the end when I read this question was about, I mean, you know, if I, I, if I put myself in the same situation, you're trying to think, oh, that would, if I was not comfortable with that. Um, I mean, my thoughts kind of go to two things. One is either just a discomfort with owning sexuality in general, mm-hmm. um, which you covered. And, and then my other thought was if, if there might be potential abuse to deal with. I mean, I, it doesn't, there's nothing mm-hmm. indicating that um, other than that. But I just mm-hmm. know, knowing from some of my friends who are severely sexually abused, um, mm-hmm. there, there can sometimes be a fear of being mm-hmm. desired. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like I said, I mean, it does, it's not the only reason someone could be that way. Um, yeah. but um, No, absolutely. So, I mean, no question
1: that there are some people whose desire is inhibited because it's been a way of setting themselves up meaning their sexuality is so linked to being exploited that they kind of disown desire and sexuality altogether as a protective move.
0: That's one of the hard things I think about these questions is you have 250 words mm-hmm. to give your advice and you don't have responses you can't inquire and give real yeah. specific Absolutely. because you don't know you know you could probably ask a handful of questions you know what has your history been like how long have you been married has it always been this way were there ever negative experiences blah blah right. blah like you're just getting the snapshot
1: right no question and because it's not coming up in the question i'm assuming that abuse isn't at the foundation of of the challenge it could be but but for many, many women, in my experience, there's no abuse. It is very much about growing up in a culture in which sexuality is not, a, how to say, it, is not an expression of femininity and and good womanhood. Now, I think that when you have sort of the cultural shaming of it, even if it's covert, not necessarily overt, that it makes it really easy to not forge one's development in the sexual realm and to not take any sense of ownership in it and I understand it I'm not standing in simple judgment of it I certainly understand that way that people have inherited these ideas but maybe what I want to challenge is that people sit with the idea that it's about goodness that's part of the false doctrine (laughs) those are the false traditions that have been handed down especially in the context of a marriage Because I know plenty of women who are the higher desire partners and their husbands don't want to invest or forge or develop their their sexuality. And, you know, we don't tend to think of men as victims of of sexuality, meaning we're more likely to be protective of women around it. Uh, But, you know, I guess what I'm saying is if if you get married, you are basically agreeing to a sexual relationship. That's partly what you're saying, is this is exclusive and important in this way. But then what happens often is when people get married, the anxiety is high enough that they don't, they wanna know that the sexuality of the other person is coming towards them, but they don't want to really forge a good sexual relationship. And so it's a way of, out of fear and anxiety, taking advantage of the other person. And so I understand it, I understand the fear and anxiety, But it's not goodness. (laughs) It's more around letting your fears and your anxiety run your choices and run your marriage. Now, sometimes there's good reasons why somebody doesn't want to bring their best sexual selves to a marriage because of what's happening on the other side, who their partner is, what they're doing with their sexuality. Uh, So I'm not making just a simple judgment of it either. But I think when you're committing to a marriage, you're committing to, to love and care for the other person and you're committing to bring your sexuality to bear in that way of loving and caring. Sometimes the best way to love and care is to stand up for something that you need to have change or be different in order to have a good sexual relationship. But that still means you're really standing up for creating one. Even if it means addressing issues that are interfering with having one,
0: the cultural thing—it's, as you've said many times, it's not just a Mormon thing. It's like we have American thing to have this fascination and anxiety about sex, but it's also a deeply Christian thing. There's mm-hmm. not a lot of female role models in Christianity no, or in, in most religions, and the one, the ma- the one female. Is a virgin, and she yes. she gives birth to Christ without having sex with anyone. Uh, yes. depending on which sect of Christianity or which denomination you you adhere to. Yes, but that's right. She's a like that's the role model is the is a virgin, and Absolutely. so there's no there's no role model at all for there's no
1: moderation around it. I mean, yeah, you have the harlot, and then the virgin, and you don't have
2: um, this, unless you maybe, go with uh, Judah's daughter in law. <laughs> well, oh. <laughs> Old
0: Testament's a whole nother bag of. Yeah, I know,
2: <laughs> <The> Old Testament <laughs> has some very interesting
1: women. <laughs> I mean, this maybe needs to be another podcast at some time. But you know, women's sexuality is remarkable in terms of the level. I mean, part of the anxiety around women's sexuality is really about how earthy and carnal women's sexuality is capable of being and if there's if there's a winner between who's more sexual between men and women it's women now the way that we have constructed sexuality it looks a lot like men are the ones that know about sex and women haven't a clue and they're so busy being virtuous and taking care of kids that they have no idea
0: we're so busy building phallic symbols
1: (laughs) but you know i think that women are much more picky about the sex they're having and that may be a factor of what's going on with this woman that maybe she needs to talk about and deal with, but what is not working for her in this sexual relationship. Women are pickier about the kind of sex they're having, but when they are having the right kind of sex, then uh, you know men really become the, what's the word, like the caretakers of of. The, the depth of their sexuality that really links to their soul. So I think a lot of the constraints on se- women's sexuality has been about the fear of its power and its depth. Anyway, I, when I'm talking about women sort of owning their sexuality and, and standing up more in their relationships, I'm not trying to pressure them to be beholden to their husbands, which is often what they're resisting. And I don't blame them one bit for that. But I'm talking about being true to themselves and the relationship at the same time. Because when you curtail your sexual development, you cur- curtail your spiritual uh, and interpersonal development. And it's a big price to pay um, if around false traditions. So we can do a podcast on that sometime.
0: Well, yes. Maybe we should do that in the future. Um, but... Getting back to the topic of this second question. That's something that people can wrestle with for a long time. Kind of the same idea that keeps coming up. It's something to get comfortable with. It's something to strive for that because of our culture, it's not quote unquote natural, meaning it's not modeled in our culture. It's Mm -hmm. not modeled to, to develop in this way. You really have to take steps. You have to be able to take steps on your own. Mm-hmm. To own your sexuality, develop it with your spouse, um, to have it be a, a relationship that blesses you through it,
1: mm-hmm. right? And I mean, just to say, it's not just Mormons that struggle with sexual development. Mm-hmm. It, it 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 takes some courage to be at peace enough with yourself to develop this part of yourself and to share it. And that's not just a Mormon problem. That's a human challenge. Um, and you know lots of people have plenty of sex without any development internally, without any moral development. so it's the, it's not a requirement of being sexual, but it is a requirement of having meaningful loving um, good sex in a marriage.
0: All right, well, I think that's a good uh, good set of questions we talked about. Thank you, Jennifer, for coming on again to help produce our most favorite series in the podcast. <laughs>
1: oh sex always seems to do well I was going to write my dissertation on forgiveness and I somehow think I wouldn't be as popular if it was like ask a Mormon forgiveness therapist I don't know
0: (laughs) (laughs) well you might be more popular with like Deseret Book or something okay probably (laughs) (laughs) yeah Um, you are less popular than Tom Christofferson because of this policy thing I bet. Anyway, so thank you, Laurel and Jennifer, for coming on the podcast.
1: You're welcome. Thank you. All right, guys. Okay. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.
0: Bye-bye. Well, folks, I hope that was entertaining and informative for you. Um, like I said earlier, the next episode that will come onto your podcast download device or software platform, however you get the podcast, the next episode coming out will describe in detail the Leahona Children's Foundation fundraiser campaign we are doing again this year. So make sure to look, at, look into that podcast, listen to it, go to the website, go to the Indiegogo page, all of that, and... Until next time, keep keeping it weird, folks.